Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. So today, let's get into it. Today, I am to oh, you can realize I'm talking about idols. The reason being is that last week I started a, uh, a series called Heaven on Earth. And the question is, what would life look like right here, right now, if heaven was here? And we ask that for the next question, what would it look like if heaven came down? Over the next month, few months, we're going to be unpacking kingdom principles. Kingdom principles are, so principles are fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system or belief or behavior for a chain of reasoning. So what we're going to be asking is, what are the fundamental truths of heaven that can serve as the foundation for how we live on earth right here, right now? Is that good? Yeah. Gentle person next to you say, what are the truths? What are the truths? Well, let me tell you. Today I'm going to talk to you about idols. The reason why I want to talk to you about idols is because if you were to look at heaven, and you were to imagine heaven, who do you believe we will be worshipping in heaven? God. One God and one God only. So if we're on earth and we're worshipping more than one God and one God that we call Jesus God by Creator Father, whatever you call Him, if we're worshipping more than one God, that becomes something called an idol. Because an idol is an image or representation of a God used as an object of worship. Let me say that again. Oh, that's not it. <laughs> an image or representation of a God used as an object of worship. So as Christians, we show the reality of heaven to those around us. Yes, last week I talked about that we are called pockets of heaven. That we are the temple. We are now the temple that contains the presence. Well, we don't contain God. God inhabits us. Inhabits us as temples. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. So we take from the church, from these four walls, we take to the world the presence of God. We take the reality of heaven. So what we're talking about is that when we're when we're showing the reality of heaven to people around us, we want them to say, You worship one God. I want someone to look at me and say, you worship one God, Andrew, the only true God. I don't want people to look at me and say, there's a duality within your soul that is tearing you apart, like one side of the rim to the other. No, I want them to say, I know what that guy lived for. I know who he worships. I know why he does what he does. I don't want people to think that I'm a, a fraud, I'm doing this to get something for myself. I want people to know that I've been impacted so much by the reality of Jesus, by the reality of His love, that I will worship Him, one God and one God only. Who wants that today? Who wants people to say, that person showed me God? Because anything that becomes an object of worship in our lives takes our worship away from God. And anything that we worship in place of God becomes an idol. 
And you might be saying, come on, I'm a Christian. Of course I only worship one God. Of course, Andrew. Of course, I'm a Christian. I come to church every Sunday. Of course, I worship one God. What are you saying? You don't know me, Andrew. I know some of you. Yeah. I know not all of you that well, but some of you. I think we will be so very surprised at how many things actually take our time from God. And how we actually devote more of our time, money, and devotion to idols as opposed to God. Yeah? Let's, let's do a history lesson. Who likes history? As I've grown up and grown older, I've realized that I like looking back a little bit, which helps me remember and helps me see where I've come from and where the world has come from. So let's look back at where God's instructions are surrounding idols in the Bible, or one of the initial places where it starts. And we're going to go to somewhere called the Golden Calf, where the people called the Israelites found in Exodus. We're looking at Exodus where a man named Moses, if you say, if you know Moses, just say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When Moses had just led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. So Israelites would be taken, God's chosen people would be taken captive by a godless or a, a, a nation that didn't believe in the, the God of Judah, of Judah that they'd be taken captive by them to uh, their foreign, a foreign land and kept there as slaves. So while the Egyptians had done that, Moses came along, and we won't go into it today, but let, if, you, if you know about it, you know about it. If not, ask me later. Moses helped them be set free from Egypt through the power of God. Well, the power of God through Moses, rather. So what then happens is Moses is led towards a place called the Red Sea. And the Egyptians decided once the, the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, the, the Egyptians were like, hold up. They're leaving. We need to go get them back. And so even though they've been set free, there's something that's trying to, the Egyptians are trying to pull them back into slavery, which preaches in itself. But what happened was when they got to the Red Sea, who knows what happened? God parted the Red Sea. So he said, I'm not going to stand on here. There's a picture of Moses standing on this rock, parting the Red Sea. Think of a sea. Don't think of a lake. Think of an ocean. Don't think of a river. It's huge. It is huge. And over hundreds of thousands of Israelites needed to trek through this sea. So God does this insane miracle, a miracle that seems foolish to humanity. It doesn't make sense. He's parts the Red Sea, a raging sea, and the Israelites go through it safely. And once they made it to the other side unharmed, what happened? God brought the sea back together and defeated the enemy. The Israelites were set free miraculously. In an act of God's power, they were set free. Then what happens is, in the desert, Moses was on a mountain called Mount Sinai, receiving or retrieving something called the Ten Commandments from God. So what God has said is like, you've been set free, you've been in slavery, I'm going to give you a new set of laws. A set of laws for you to live by. And he declared that if you are my people, then you listen and obey these laws. These laws, the Ten Commandments, which were given to Moses in two stone tablets, 
They set out the basic principles that would govern the Israelite, Israelites' lives. Principles, foundational truths. Foundational truths. But while Moses, so there was a moment, there was a, 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 a passage of time where Moses said, Hey guys, Israel, I'm heading up the mountain to hear from God. And then what we're going to have is we're going to have this new system. We're going to have this new way of living. We're going to have a new freedom. God's going to give us principles that we can live by, which means that we glorify His name. So He goes up the mountain. And while He's up the mountain, something crazy happens. Because people got impatient. Hands up, He's been a little bit impatient recently. Hands up, you see something go a way that they didn't think it would go and be like, I just don't have time. I'm giving up. I'm at the end of my tether. The Israelites got impatient. So what did the Israelites do while Moses was up this mountain? They turned to Moses' brother. There's something about this, about things we turn to how close to the, the actual thing it is that we turn to. Sometimes it's just a little bit off. We turn to it. It's, it's like, you know that close but no cigar saying? It's like, close but no cigar. They turn to the brother of the person they've been called to follow. So close, yet so far. And they say, Aaron, make us an idol that we can worship. A physical idol, like the ones they've seen in Egypt. We have to recognize that up until this point, God had never been seen. God did not have a physical image. God was not defined. He did not have a statue that said, this is what God looks like. Up until that point, they had seen signs and wonders of God, but God was more recognized as a voice, of something that they're an immaterial being up until that point and then the Israelites said well give us something we can see give us something physical in essence they've grown impatient with God so they wanted another one fashioned in the meantime so they could worship it Aaron obliged them and made a golden calf out of the golden earrings they wore which likely were the very same treasures they brought with them from Egypt so why was the idol chosen as a golden calf? Why a calf? Bulls and calves were a traditional animal sacrifice in that time, and they symbolized strength and fertility. Many gods of Egypt were fashioned after bulls, so the golden calf was a natural choice of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. The golden calf represented God's power, having delivered the Israelites from Egypt. It's funny how well-intentioned is actually seen. It's like, no, we want a golden calf because God's powerful. Because he set us free. Strength, fertility, future. Give us a golden calf. God will be so pleased with this thing that we have built for him. So close. Yet so far. They wanted to worship God. This is the thing, though. They wanted to worship God. But they just found 
another way of going about it. They've said, we need, though, for us, we need an idol to do that. For me to worship God, I need to see it. I need to see it to believe it. But by the time that Moses descended Mount Sinai, imagine being Moses, being like, oh, sweet, I'm just going to go up. We're going to get the future, the vision, the, the tablets. We're going to be like, this is what we, how we're going to live. These are the foundational truths. He goes up the mountain. He's so full of faith, so excited. He's like, sweet, I've got the tablets. And he's coming back down. And then he's like, he sees his golden calf there. And he's just like, almost like seven days. It wasn't long at all. Imagine his shock. Because God, remember, God brought them out of Egypt through miraculous means. What happened? What did we talk about before? The Red Sea, plagues, signs and wonders in Egypt that actually set them free from the captivity in Egypt. He showed his ultimate power, parting a whole sea so a country of people could walk through it. It was a country. A country walked through a sea. Studies showed that it actually only it only took from April to about July. Two or three months for the Israelites to decide that they needed a golden calf. It took two or three months, 60 to 90 days, the, the chronology of it is, for them to be like, oh, you brought us through the Red Sea, but hold up, we're impatient, give us a golden idol, like the ones we had in Egypt. The things we're familiar with, the comfort of seeing an actual idol. That seems pretty fickle, doesn't it? Three, three months it took a country to turn from God to a golden calf. Moses walks down and sees his golden calf. And then he decides, I'm going to share with you these words from God. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. No other God before me. Other verses say besides me. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven alone or is that, that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Who thinks God was a little bit serious? when he said that. You shall have no other God before me. You realize that typical practice in worship, both Christian, like Judaism back in the day, and anything else, any foreign God, included bowing. Bowing was a posture of worship, a posture of surrender. So what they were doing is like, I'm giving my surrender to a golden calf that's made out of the earrings that I was wearing the other day. What we have to realize is this is a very weighty thing. God had set free a people and was giving them this new way of living. And before God could even say, hey, this is a new way of living, they had already erected 
a golden calf in his place. In the transition time, they had said, you set us free, you took us to the Red Sea, but I know what I need to worship you. Is that confronting? Because I got confronted right in this, to be honest. So this may seem pretty harsh. We have to recognize the weightiness of the situation. What we also have to realize about the Ten Commandments is that they were a picture of grace. As much as we might not think it, I'll get Molly to link a, um, a sermon to you on the Freedom Family page later on that goes more into depth about this, but the, the Ten Commandments were a picture of grace. The introduction of the Ten Commandments, we have to consider it from the perspective of a long line of slaves. 430 years it is believed that these, these people were slaves in Egypt. So they were born into slavery and they died as a slave. And what we have to understand as well is that the average age that people would live to in the Bible is believed to be around 32 years old. So that's many. Almost happened, didn't get me. But it's like 32 <laughs> years old. That's the average age that people would live to. There's other people who lived a lot longer, but 32 was the average age taken into account everyone who was outside of the, uh, of the Israel nation. So being born into slavery, you know nothing else. You just know this is the way it has always been done. I was born under oppression. I didn't own my own things. I didn't, if, if someone wanted to take something from me, they'll just take it. If someone wanted to kill me, they could just kill me if they were stronger than me. I was a slave. If they wanted to beat me, they could beat me. I didn't have day off. You know, I had to worship their God. I had to bow before their gods. We have to understand slaves had a very bad life, controlled, and you had to assimilate to the culture that you were in, and you had to listen and obey the people who owned you. So slavery. So when we when we look at the Ten Commandments, it's grace. Because it's God giving people something that they did not earn or deserve. They got welcomed to being a human again. They had the freedom to choose. The freedom to choose and to respond. Because what God did, he came down and he says, these are my Ten Commandments. And then all of a sudden the Israelites are saying, hold on, we get a day off the Sabbath, keep it holy. You can't kill me or take my things because you're stronger than me. Don't, do not commit murder. My human rights and dignity will be respected in our new culture. This was amazing for these slaves. The Ten Commandments were mind-blowing. They're like, do not have any God before me. All right. I had the freedom to choose. I had the freedom to choose. I was human once more. I didn't have to do just what people told me. I had the opportunity to respond. So we have to understand that when the Israelites had this, the Ten Commandments, and God was choosing to bless them with freedom from slavery, not because of what they had done, but because He loved them. And He wanted all the people of the world to know that He was a loving God. God gave this gift of grace. And in the meantime, 
as you're delivering this gift of grace, they build a golden calf and start worshipping it in God's place. The Israelites were bought out of slavery, given the freedom to choose again, and they chose a shiny cow child. A shiny cow child, a golden calf. Now, let's look at our reality. We are set free from slavery to sin. We are so thankful when we first become Christian. I don't know about you, but the first few months of me being a Christian, first year, I was buzzing. I was at all the meetings. I was doing everything I could to honor God. But now think of your life. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while. How quickly can we choose idols, other things that take God's place in our lives? Is there something in your life right now that is taking your worship from God? Just Let's just think about that. Is there something in our lives that's taking our worship from God? Because when it does, people will recognize it. They will see it. As we go about our day, we bring the reality of heaven. And we need to do something called a spiritual audit. A spiritual audit. Take stock. Look at our lives. Because there may be idols in our lives that we don't even recognize. Some of the idols that there can be is money. I choose finances over my worship or obedience to God. A job. I choose my job over God, over being part of the body. I choose social media to, to be my main focus of time. I heard a crazy stat the other day that in your life, I was talking to Chris about this actually, in your life the average person will spend seven years scrolling through social media. Seven years of your life scrolling through social media. Do you want to know what the, the time is to people who, who are at the upper end of the, the time of their phone, their phone with research? Ten years. Some people will spend ten years of their life scrolling through social media. I don't want to spend ten years of my life scrolling through social media. And it just happens. Oh, I just opened his phone. The average that someone touches their phone in a day, like the, they grab it, put it down, grab it, put it in their pocket, just touch it, is around 2,000 times a day. You will grab your phone, move it, touch it. That might not be for everyone, but we're talking about every generation here. And double that for the, the, the worst of the worst users here. Your phone. Social media is an idol. Who knows that social media and their phone is an idol in their lives? Let's put our hands up. I'm going to say that. I'm going to expose myself here. It is an idol. Success, relationships, comfort, appearance. I go down the bottom. Your phone. Fame. If you, were to, if you were to do a comparison chart of the things that you spend your time doing, what would it look like, for example? I know the thing about job, your job is that you work your job. I recognize that. 
But when your job consumes you and it takes over your family and you choose not to start not coming to church or being part of church anymore and the community because I have to work at my job, I have to get to the highest, highest level that I can be, it's an idol. It starts to move into that area. But if you were to do a comparison chart of things you spend your time doing, Let's, let's just think of a Venn diagram within yourself. Not, well, maybe a pie graph, actually. How much time would you spend on your phone a day versus reading the Bible? The arrow just flew out and hit me in the heart, you know? How, many time, how much time would we spend watching TV versus time praying? And this, I'm, I'm making this hyperbole here. I want us to be shocked. I want us to feel uncomfortable. How much time do we spend on the internet versus time that we spend with God? If we were to do a comparison chart here, we'll start to see some scary numbers. I remember when the, the app on your phone is like, um, it sees how much time you've spent doing stuff on your phone, and you could, you, it just automatically came on your phone. And you had to turn it off. I remember looking down my screen time and being like, oh my goodness, I spent that much time on my phone. And it scared me, actually. It, and it convicted me. And Meg's just like, Andrew, you need to get your time down. I'm like, I need to get my time down. I'm not saying that we can't do these other things. I want to get that straight. I'm not saying that, but when these things start to steal glory from God, time from God, affection, devotion from God, what we've done is we've chosen to build a golden calf in God's place. Why? I call this issue the immaterial versus the material. The immaterial versus the material. There's someone in the Bible called Doubting Thomas. He is the kind of the, the, where we look at the Bible is where we get this idea of like seeing is believing. Doubting Thomas, it was one of the disciples, and what he said to Jesus is like, unless I see the nail marks in your hands and put my fingers where the nails were, I will not believe. That's kind of John 20 verses 25. And often we are the same God, unless I see something, I will not believe it. Doubting Thomas. Unless, God, Jesus, I see the holes in your hand from your crucifixion, even though I see you in front of me, even, unless I see them and put my finger there and be like, oh, there's a hole there, I'm not going to believe. The immaterial is the material. Sometimes it's easier to worship something you can see than a God that we cannot see. But it says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Faith does not come through seeing, but from hearing. John 20, verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have been blessed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. That was Jesus talking to his disciples who saw him. But there are many people all of us, effectively, who will not have seen the man Jesus himself. And then we have Colossians 1.15, that Jesus was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So unless we saw Jesus in the flesh, who was the image of the invisible God, we worship God through the Spirit. We respond through faith, in faith through hearing. 
We walk by faith and not by sight. Come on. Is this preaching? It is easy to worship something that is seen than something that is not seen. And that's what we find people doing again and again throughout history, trying to create an image of God that they can worship. What image have you put up or created in your life that represents God? When God has said, I have no image. We, we have no picture of God. Jesus came and says, I am the image of the invisible. But Jesus is not here. We have the Spirit. Let's go to a man named Solomon. Fun fact. I was going to be called Solomon. Then God decided, no, Andrew's a better name. And according to this story, I'm kind of glad... As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, who desired to build it? Solomon. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gideon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. So I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and heart will be there for all time. But there's a little part in between, a bit of genealogy, but let's jump a little bit further down in 1 Kings 9, verses 6 to 8. But then God says, all right, it's like, it's like God saying, all right, have the car. You can have the car. Here are the keys. But before you have the keys, let me just tell you something. Let's, just speak, let's have a little talk. Before you start, let me just talk to you. If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my, for my name. I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become covered and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done this to the land and to, to the house? Ooh. Before King Solomon built the first temple for God, God used to come and meet his people in a tent. But he wasn't, he wasn't actually in the tent most of the time. He would come and he would go. He would descend, descend and descend in a cloud of glory. So before the temple was there, there was this tent that the Israelites would move around the desert and be like, oh, we're going here. God's called us over here now. And then God says, I will meet you in that tent. So before the temple, God was never contained and he was never going to be contained by a tent, by a temple. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is, his presence fills the whole of creation, it says. But he chose to meet his people in a temple on the condition that they had no other God besides him. That's God effectively throwing humanity alone and saying, I'll let you create a space for us to meet. But if you worship this space instead of me, I will tear this temple down. Come on. I will let you meet 
as a church. But if you start worshiping the church itself more than me, I will tear that church down. God was serious. God was not put in the temple, but he decided I will inhabit that temple. God was not, oh, we've got God, and we've grabbed him, we've got a piece of him, and we've got him in a little silver box, and he can't get out, and people put him in the temple, because this is where God lives. No, God said, I will choose and come and inhabit this building that you have built, because I recognize that you need this. Might maybe look at church a little bit differently. Because God does not exist in a church building. It is a common location that we recognize as a meeting place where God chooses to meet us. This is the thing. King Solomon wanted to build an amazing temple to God, but God was happy to meet them in a tent that moved around all the while. The tent was portable. It would move around about and God, like when you organized to meet a friend at a uh, friend for coffee, said, You go there, I will meet you there. Meet me there at this time. Meet me there at this time. But people needed a temple. God agreed to the temple with conditions. He agreed with conditions. And the church is a gathering, it's an assembly of people, but there, are, there is a condition to this church that we worship Jesus in this church. That is the condition. We have no God beside Him. God in greater conditions. Solomon, do not let this temple become an idol. But who knows that Solomon had a few distractions. Who knows how many distractions Solomon had? 700 distractions. It was easily distracted. Solomon loved his women. 700 of them. And most of these women, we have to understand, were foreign and of royal birth. Most of these 700 wives were foreign and of foreign birth. So what does that mean if they're not of foreign birth? They worship foreign gods. 700 foreign wives and foreign gods. So what did Solomon do to honor his wives? He built 700 mini temples. Why? Because he was rich. He had the money. Why not? I'm going to do it. But he had 700 miniature temples so his wives could worship their God. And Solomon, by the end of his life, actually went on to worship his foreign gods along with the God of Israel. Until that point, God did not have an image. As soon as God was placed within the temple, God became common to humanity. That's right, let's just hear that again. Until God was put in the temple, he did not have an image. As soon as he was, he became common. Because there are other temples erected to other gods. There was a place, there was an image of God. Why? God, all these foreign gods lived in a temple and that's something material to either represent them or contain them. The God of Israel was brought down to the level of an idol by the very people who built the temple to honor him. The temple became an idol. The temple made God touchable 
ritual, fallible material. And this is my question. Do we worship God or, or do we worship the church? Do we worship God or do we worship the church? The temple was the first time that God had a location for God to humanity. The church can become an idol to us. God is not the church. We are the church. God is not the church. He is God. I want to say that. God is God. God is God. Our handiwork to God is not a substitution for our devotion to Him. We create structures unto God for ourselves. God never asked for statues or idols. He asked for our devotion and obedience. And that is where we need to ask ourselves, what has become an idol in place of God? What is your golden calf? What is our golden calf today? What has become God in place of God? I hope you're convicted. I hope you're challenged by the Spirit. Because what better time to lay some things down before God than at the start of the year? What better time for us to say, I do not worship the church, I am part of the church. But I worship God. Three things I want to leave you with. Three things that are indicative of who sits on the throne of your life. Your time, your money, and your talents. Your time shows your focus. It's not true that you have no time. You're just not trying hard enough to create margin within your time. If you don't have time to read your Bible, get up earlier, watch less Netflix, listen to the Bible app instead of the radio in the car. Why? Because he says, keep the Sabbath holy. We are told a foundational truth of heaven is time, rest, keeping the Sabbath holy. We have time. We might just be struggling to create a margin within our times because we need to lay down some idols. Come on. Yeah. We need to lay down some idols. Time highlights your values. If you value something, you make time for it. Do you value brushing your teeth? You make time for it. Do you value dinner? You make time for it. Do you value time with your family? You make time for it. If you value something, you make time for it. If you worship God, you will make time to be with God and worship Him. But if something is consistently getting in the way of your worship to God, it's more than just a distraction, it's an idol. It's something that has become your focus. Your time. And this might hurt or sting you a little because you're like, you don't know me, Andrew. You don't know what I'm going through. And I don't know what you're going through. I'm not going to pretend I know what you're going through. I might have an understanding because I've seen it, seen a little bit of it. What I'm trying to do here is bring us back to a standard. A biblical standard 
that says that this is the way that God has taught us to, to represent heaven. This is the foundational truth. If you need to do an audit of your life to see where do I spend my time, you'll be surprised how you spend your time. So the first thing is your time. Second thing is your money. Once again, this is a tough one, but it shows your master. The book of Acts is a clear picture of what the kingdom could look like. People were so captivated by the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, by God, that they sold all that they had and they gave it to the church so no one went without. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not asking you to do that. What I'm saying is that when we're truly captivated by God, our time and our money become under submission to God. And we talk about tithing as a heart issue, but that doesn't mean we justify not honoring God with our money by saying that our hearts aren't in the right place. It's a heart issue, yes, but I can't control your attitude. Do you honor God or do you not honor God? Do you worship God or do you not worship God? Your heart might not be in the right place, yes, but where to get your heart in the right place is start moving the direction you want it to be. Your money. Money can become an idol. We know this verse that says you cannot serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I believe every single person here wants to be generous. I believe every single person here wants to help people, help your family, your friends. I believe every single person here wants to be generous. But I also know that some of us are being mastered by an idol, that we're worshipping an idol, and we need to break free of it. The only reason I say this is because I was worshipping many things for a long time. I was controlled by things for many, many things for a long time. I was in a position of bowing. I was in surrender to these things. The way that we, the way that we get out of surrender as we stand up and we kick this idol over, we name it in shame and we say that from today on I will worship one God and one God only. And the final thing, your talents shows your part to play. The parable of the talents shows us three servants. Each of them received one, three, or five. One person received one talent, one person received three, one people received five. They were given this currency by their master. One buried their single talent in a field, the other two invested their three talents, three and five talents. The master, though, came back to the single talent person and said, I will take this off you. You are supposed to go and do something with this. You are supposed to make this grow, go and multiply this. Yes, you have decided out of fear that I will sit on this instead. He said, why don't you just go and put it in an investment bank account? It would have grown interest on it. You know, this, this sounds like money, but when we look at it from the sense of our talents, our gifts, our skills to invest into the kingdom of God, if we choose to hide these talents away, we're indicating to God that something else is of more worth. Maybe how people see me, maybe what people think of me. An idol is taking God's place. But when we faithfully use that which God has gifted us with, we honor God 
with our talents. Your time, your money, and your talents. Let's look at them closely and see if we have any idols in our lives. Let's close our eyes. This year, I said that I'm going to come. I'm going to come harder. I'm going to come. And I really want us to grow. I want us to be people who recognize God's truth and respond to Him. People of discipline. People who grow. People who are in a place of surrender. And so if this message has irked you, you can talk to me afterwards. And that's okay. If it's irked you, that's totally fine. But I just want to bring biblical truth. Because I want to grow. I want to show heaven to my unsaved friends. I want to show heaven to my family who don't believe. I want to show heaven to the world that's crying out for hope. I want to show heaven to the world in need. And I believe we all do. Heaven has one God. So why allow other things to take God's place in our lives? So let's name some idols. Let's knock them off the throne. Let's bring out today and let it become a thing of the past. What idols do you want to topple? And a sign of response. If you know any idols in your life that you want to topple, that's taking your time, your money, your talents, your focus, you just put your hands out and find like you're giving these talents away. Just put them out in front of you, just saying, giving these idols away, that I do not want this idol in my life any longer. This is not an idol that will control me. This is not an idol that I will bow to you or surrender my life to you any longer. So that's you. Just put your hands out in front of you as subtly as you want to, as before you and God. And let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would topple these idols. Come on. We pray that these things that we name and shame would not become things that control our lives, but would be things of the past, things that we overcome, things that we can say that I worship one God and one God only too. When this idol pops back up in your life, we look at it in the eyes and we say that Jesus on the cross, his grace is sufficient for all my needs. Therefore, I will not invest any more of my time, money, value, anything in things that will steal from God's glory. In the name of Jesus, I just pray for any spiritual strongholds. In the name of Jesus, fear. In the name of Jesus, I just break off fear of people's lives right now. I just say that fear has no place in the kingdom. That God's love casts out fear. And where fear is causing us to keep idols in place, Lord, I pray that your perfect love will come and keep that fear out. And as that fear is banished, we just pray that your name would be lifted high. You know, some of us, some of us, we kind of put addiction in this, this uh, substance abuse kind of idea, but I think some of us are addicted to a certain mindset. We're addicted to a certain mindset. And it's almost this, this cynicism and pessimism that God wants to change.
God has called us a people of hope, a people of faith. With Jesus, there is hope. So this pessimism and cynicism, this cynical nature, Lord, I just pray that you will soften hearts. You will soften hearts, Holy Spirit. You will come in to those places that we are holding out on. And you will give us a soft heart once again, God. A heart of surrender to you. God, I pray that the idol of saying, always thinking that things are going to go wrong, will be turned into an idol saying, we're not idols, sorry. Will be turned into a mindset, a belief that says, God is here. What can he do? Let's not go to the worst, but let's say, what can God do here? So in the name of Jesus, we topple these idols. We kick them over, we flip tables, and we say that we want to worship you, God. You and you only. Investigate our heart, Lord. Search the deep places of us. And help us to identify this as we go into this work. In Jesus' name we all say, Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City Podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.